0: The WISER Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hello and welcome to The WISER Podcast. I'm Siso mbofu Welsh. Sarah Nuttall is a renowned professor of literary and cultural studies and the director of WISER. In this podcast, she explores changes in university life at her own university, Wits and beyond, brought about by COVID-19 against her concept of the redistributed university. For quite some time, I've been thinking and writing about what I've called the redistributed university. By that, I've meant the ways in which the university as an institution has been changing, distributing itself differently, it seems to me, in relation to multiple pressures and struggles, including economic pressures, struggles for social justice, and rapid technological change. Redistribution is, in the first instance, a theory of economic justice. The term may also connote the building of a system of reciprocities within a collective. I draw on it, too, to think about how an institution might come to distribute its component parts across time and space, from the sense of where and what it perceives its inside and its outside to be, to its contested and shifting place in historical time, to the phased parameters of its offline and online existence. There'll be time in what follows to expand on these ideas. But what I'd like to consider first in this podcast is the sense of where we are now after seven months of a global pandemic, specifically at Witts University, but also at so many other universities around the world. How can we think about the silent university of this unprecedented year of 2020, the dormant or hibernating university, in contrast not least to the university of five years ago to the month when students on South African university campuses rose in vociferous protest against the new old status quo, against the university as it had become, and failed to become, in the forceful analytic glare of generational critique. Where are the continuities between then and now, I wonder? And where are the breaks, turning on the new conditions of the epidemiological, the multiple lives of a pathogen, and its outbreak phenomena? It's too soon to tell, as academics are fond of saying, but let me try to work with this, at least as a question, concretely and somewhat speculatively, across this podcast. Wits University, like many universities around the world, shut abruptly and completely in late March. Eunice Velakazi, who has been a cleaner in the Richard Ward building where Wiser is located for more than eight years, was, like the rest of the university's staff and its students, summarily sent home. She didn't leave her small house in Soweto, not even into the backyard, she says, for more than a month. The streets around her were utterly silent, as never before. Police appeared sometimes on patrol. It never occurred to us, she says, that everything would get stuck. Confined by one of the strictest lockdowns in the world, Eunice was called back on rotation to Witz several months later. When she arrived, she was one of only three workers on the university's Upper East Campus. She found cats crossing the courtyards, and small animals that she likened to fluffy rats scuffling in the piles of autumn leaves, stacking up against buildings. These were dassies, small furry animals that most Johannesburg people, including me, thought lived only on Table Mountain. Eunice found the silence fearful. Over the weeks, as cleaners were redefined as essential workers, Eunice's rotation on the East Campus grew from three to seven to twelve people, but she still cleaned mostly in silence. Cleaning itself had taken on a new significance. As Catriona Lally, a cleaner turned essential worker at Trinity College Dublin wrote in a COVID-19 blog I read online, it will doubtless be done more often and more extensively. And I reflect having lost a job in a previous recession that at least I may be in a pandemic proof occupation. Three years earlier, Eunice Villacase had been insourced at WITS, a direct outcome and negotiated victory of student worker protests in 2016. Now with a better salary and an option to send her children to WITS, she enjoyed coming to work. The difference, she said, no longer being outsourced, was that you didn't feel constantly that you could be dismissed for some small infringement, some idea that you weren't doing your job properly, and the terrible stress of that. Student movements in late 2015 and 2016 had fought to undo lingering colonial and apartheid legacies in the present, to drag universities away from their still standing colonial statues in some instances, their remaining racially skewed staffing structures, their insufficiently Africa-based curricula, their outdated art collections, and the unreconsidered names of many of their buildings, their fee structures, and their outsourcing of workers. These struggles operated along the timelines of a redistributive logics deeply invested in social justice. They were struggles, too, over the politics of time, over the temporal order of things, including the dismantling or strong contestation of the widely used rubric of post-apartheid, seeking to redistribute its parts, insisting, as a potent politics of negation, as Adorno would have recognized it to be, that what had been taken by many to be past. Was not past but coeval with the present. Such struggles took place in the context of rising inequality and on the terrain of what Jean and John Komaroff have termed the neoliberated South Africa. In the years leading up to student protests in this country, academic conferences and debates had begun to proliferate, including at Wiser, on the state of the university today. They were taking place here, but also elsewhere in the world. Many of these debates involved contestations about what constituted their inside and their outside, about how to straddle the often harsh boundaries between the university and what it had been, was, and needed to become, and the society of which it was and was not a part, about the work of activist scholars who worked to mitigate these boundaries, and how universities could make their walls more porous. Discussions took place about whether the university could be an asylum of sorts from the harshness and immediacy of the social and about how knowledge in an advancing technological age contributing to the growing crisis in the humanities was being driven increasingly by formations less circumscribed by institutions and disciplines as it became more easily searchable and the university a node in a network. Universities were also being literally redistributed across the globe as private universities. No longer the study abroad sites of the post-Cold War era of area studies. These were now full degree-granting campuses, ones which tended to ignore their local context very often and to relegate the concerns of the social as such to their outside. Public universities on the African continent had, since the 70s, in many cases been Africanized, but they were also in debt. Faculty salaries had often been cut. Student bursaries had fallen away. A process of negative redistribution had unfolded, with numerous scholars adding to the brain drain or joining consultancies as a way to make ends meet. The number of private universities kept increasing. In all these ways, the university was coming under scrutiny and being directly contested as well. Returning now to the dormant university of the present, or more accurately, perhaps, the university in abeyance, waiting out a second wave, with much of the southern academic year gone, we've seen how one of the key changes marking the pandemic university has been the redefinition of cleaning staff as essential workers, even without the wages to show for it in some instances. But even as Eunice Vilakazi wanted the university back, to return to a physically present community she had struggled hard to win belonging to, the institution was in other ways taking flight. As essential workers came to work, other constituencies of the university had gone virtual, entered cyberspace more fully than ever before. Compelled to take their classes online, students had been sent home under the national state of disaster and were being taught on WhatsApp as often as on Teams, where the Wi-Fi connection permitted it. Staff were teaching remotely, often for the first time and under duress, and seminars became webinars a new international knowledge commons apparently in the making. As I make this podcast, some students have returned, especially those in their final years and those who need labs and on-site facilities. Back from lockdown, curfew, prohibition and load shedding, South Africa's unique and suggestive euphemism for power cuts, and from the quandaries of home. Most have been relieved to get back to the actual physical offline university where they generally have more space, privacy, freedom, Wi-Fi, and access to their teachers. Being back has been about access to resources, from more spacious living quarters in some instances, to libraries, but also about an achieved focus on graduation and then, the hope is, employment. Being back has made that a more tangible possibility. Yet many more students are still online, preparing to write exams with no physical contact with the place they took to be the site of learning. In this, they ride a wave of change already well underway. As South Africa's economy falters further in the wake of this destructive pandemic, online learning will be cheaper and probably constitutive of the new order of things, the portal through which we walked in our obligatory masks. Perhaps it is now distance learning universities, traditionally serving people who would otherwise struggle to access higher learning. The incarcerated, the rural poor, older working people, that are suddenly better equipped in important ways than elite institutions to continue in the face of COVID-induced disruptions. Wise's corridor has stood virtually empty for its seventh month now. Office doors are closed shut, its seminar room stands silent, and sounds rising from Johannesburg's inner city just beyond remain more muted than usual. Often doubling up as a classroom, the meeting site of numerous reading groups, supervision committees, postgraduate presentations, and public intellectual events, it's a room that is generally full of people. Our books, all 55 of them, stand upright in their glass cabinet. Our public archive of posters line our walls and pillars. We've generated academic research in the form of books and articles for almost 20 years, but also tried to convert it into many kinds of interventions, remaking it as numerous forms of social intelligence. A critical public humanities archive of two decades invested in social transformation based less on a U.S. model of outreach taken to a taken-for-granted community and more on a commitment to change that is also a redistribution of what knowledge is or can be and how we can access and build it. Now, we, like others, have learned to move much of our work, many of our discussions and public fora, online. As a recalibration of the knowledge economy happens before our eyes, speakers from five continents, for instance, can be instantly together on one screen. Yet how long will it be before processes are put in place by the North, if not the South, by which one will have to pay, to subscribe and pay for access to these, for now, open access intellectual discussions, only exacerbating a digital divide already making itself felt? This is a discussion I've had with the Dean of the Faculty, Garth Stevens. We discuss how capital, resilient and elastic as always, finds ways to produce new layers of exclusion along new orders of distribution. This seems one important site of new struggles. As I speculate on Wise's for now silent corridor, I recall a conversation earlier in the day with a colleague based at UNAM in Mexico City. I asked him how things were, and amongst other things he said, Before the pandemic, women, both students and staff, were protesting against ongoing gender discrimination on campus. They were doing so by occupying several buildings, intending to hold administrators to account. Suddenly the campus was evacuated and shut down, and the buildings were empty, everybody gone, long gone. The disarray is palpable. I reflect on the ironies of the redistributed university now, of students and staff, not least, protesting discrimination by occupying buildings that suddenly empty for quite a different reason. And on the new knowledge commons that appears but may not necessarily be open to all. What happens in this new terrain to knowledge from the global south and its compromised regimes of knowledge distribution and dissemination? It does seem too soon to tell, though we might imagine how previous patterns may work on repeat. Would one possibility of the post-COVID university be a regional online university in southern Africa, a collaborative university commons in which courses could be cross listed and expertise redistributed. The weeds are still long, the university bookstore remains undecided, it seems, about reopening, and the fountains below the Great Hall at Witz throw water upwards to a largely deserted auditorium of grass. Despite a few staff and students trickling back, including those now whose conditions at home can be proved to be intolerable, the pandemic university largely prevails for now. What stays with me on the empty campus at Africa's now leading higher education institution is how much we need strong and enduring institutions. Even as they seem to want to fly off online or retreat into new forms of unequal exclusivity, we need to persistently harness them and hold them open for the newest and oldest of reasons.